And uh, if you have a Bible, either uh, in uh, paper edition or electronic edition, get it out now. We're going to study together in, um, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. Luke's Gospel is, if you, if you kind of cut the Bible in two and turn right about an inch, you'll get to Luke's Gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Luke's Gospel is, is um, basically a, a, a historian's description of Jesus and what Jesus is doing and how Jesus is acting and, and, and how people are responding to Jesus. And uh, we're going to start a series that we've called Finished. And uh, it's interesting to start a series called Finished. Um, and in this series called Finished, we're going to look just for three weeks at the Easter story, the story of Jesus. It's really interesting to me the things that we get passionate about and celebrate in life. Today we've been celebrating mums, and uh, I hope you've done the deed uh, and, and bought the presents and sent the cards and spoilt your mums, and, uh, and, and if mum's not around, you know, you've, you've thought about mum and, and, and done that stuff. I have uh, four daughters, so I have totally got to the stage when they're old enough to sort themselves out. I think, and I hope, and I kind of reckon they might have done. But also, uh, tomorrow is my wedding anniversary. So I've got an awful lot to uh, uh, 24 years. Didn't she do well? And um, so, like, just all these things that we celebrate, and I think the thing that struck me as we come around an Easter series is how excited we get about certain things and how dispassionate we are about other things. Do you know, uh, having four daughters, the amount of times I've heard, how many more sleeps, Dad? How many more sleeps? Is it ten, five, four? And they almost always refer to their birthday or Christmas. Because Christmas is coming and and it's incredible. But isn't it weird what we do at Christmas and what we do at Easter? They think that's weird. I mean, at Christmas, we kind of redecorate the whole house. You know, we sing weird songs. We buy gifts for people we don't like, and we tell lies to our kids. And we have this, it's, it's like the most incredible, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And everyone gets so excited about, about Christmas, where we celebrate the coming of Jesus. But so often it feels an awful lot like Santa Claus. But, but Easter, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Easter's a bit weird. I mean, Easter for us should be the pivot point of the whole of our lives. This festival, the death and resurrection of Jesus. A dead man walked and it kind of passes with a whimper. What do our kids think? What kind of message are we giving when we we get all excited about Christmas, dress everything up, you know, buy presents for everybody, think it's the most incredible time of the year. But when it comes to Easter, it's kind of a bit weird because it's just so Jesus. And you haven't got Santa Claus to distract us from the so Jesus thing. So I'm kind of done with that. I kind of think we kind of ought to recalibrate our heads and our hearts and our minds around this celebration being the most incredible celebration. This celebration, this festival, means life in all its fullness. 
This festival, this celebration needs, means forgiveness of sin and transformation of lives. This festival is the pivot point of, of the whole of history, not just for the church, but for the whole of creation. So in the next uh, couple of weeks, we're going to do something really, really simple. There's going to be very little that's complex about it. The sermons are going to be the most simple sermons you've ever heard, and you'll probably write to me about them later and say, you know, honestly, because we're just going to tell the story. And we're just going to bathe in the story. And we're going to remind our hearts of what really happened and why it happened. And I hope we're going to have our minds blown and our hearts warmed and our perspectives changed. Because God gave himself. God rose again. And we get to live in the reality and the light of all that stuff. So turn to uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. And we're going to read some crazy stuff. And, and I need to give you the kind of background deal to Luke 23. We're going to read from verse 32. And uh, you need to understand this. Jesus has come, born of a virgin Mary. The Gospels say he came full of grace and truth. He came because no one had ever seen the Father, but the one who is at the Father's side, Jesus, has made him known. In other words, when you see Jesus, you see God. And Jesus comes to give us the right to become children of God. That, that's what he's doing. And Jesus showed up, and when he came of age, he started to teach. And when he started to teach, he started to talk about this thing called the kingdom of God. And he said, the kingdom is at hand. In other words, the kingdom is so close, you can reach out and touch the kingdom of God. It's incredible. And the kingdom is the rule and reign of God on this earth and forever. It's the place where everything that is of God happens. And everything that is inconsistent with the perfect person of God is absent. The kingdom of God comes. And when the kingdom of God comes, Jesus started to demonstrate it. And he showed that when the kingdom of God comes, people who are sick get well. And when the kingdom of God comes, people who are excluded get included. When the kingdom of God comes, people who are bound get freed up. When the kingdom of God comes, joy comes in sorrow. When the kingdom of God comes. And then Jesus started to get a huge following. Of course he did. That's really attractive stuff. And then Jesus started to say some crazy stuff. Which meant that people started to leave. He started to talk about things like the temple is going to be destroyed and in three, the temple is really important to these people. And he said in three days time, the temple is going to get destroyed and it will get re- rebuilt again. And, and then he started to refer to himself. He said that people would, would leave him and then everything started to turn sour. He had a plan, but they had a plot. And people tried to get rid of him. And then there was a betrayal from one of his closest friends and the crowd started to reverse their opinion so those who shouted Hosanna now started to shout crucify and his closest friend then denied him I don't even know who he was I'm not with him I'm not one of his gang and a cock began to crow and then Jesus gets pulled in and arrested by the authorities and he's whipped within an inch of his life literally And then he's made to carry his cross up a hill. 
And then he's nailed to a cross to die. And, and as we get to Luke 23, the scene is brutal. And the scene is crass. And the scene is unfeeling. I mean, I imagine, we imagine that this is very dramatic, but because we see movies and stuff, but for the soldiers around the cross, this is just their day job. It's what they do. We crucify people. And and you can imagine the first couple of times that they crucified someone, it stayed with them and it haunted them and they didn't sleep because it's brutal and it's horrific and it's perhaps the worst way you can imagine to die. But after a while, it just became what they did and they crucified people. It was the law. But then they crucify Jesus. And something happens in that moment that they will never forget. Something is spoken in that moment that they will never forget. So let's read together. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Let's pray. So Holy Spirit... Father, Jesus, as we come around this, your holy word, and we, and we replay this narrative, and just listen in and watch, would you just reveal afresh to us what this is all about, who you are, and how we're supposed to respond? 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over this series, we're just going to hone in on one or two words um, that Jesus says uh, on the cross. And tonight we're going to take a look at these words. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. It's huge. It's huge. If, if, if you've hung around church for a long time and you've read the scriptures, you know that that's what is, has been said. And perhaps you're kind of inoculated against the impact of, of, of it. But if you've just come for the first time and you were to think that uh, someone being crucified on a cross in absolute agony would, would think to say, Father, forgive them. It's, it's big stuff. So let's just hang around here for a little while. Back in the day, the name Jesus was on everybody's lips. People followed him. He was like local celebrity or even national celebrity. Everyone had heard about Jesus. There was a guy who showed up who was doing incredible things. He was speaking about God as if he knew God, as if he spoke with authority, unlike so many of the other teachers of the law, as if he had some kind of hotline to God. And and he did things that um, actually, the kind of things that... If God really did walk the earth, God might do. You know, blind people saw, lame people walked, deaf people heard again. He could, had some, some kind of control or power over nature and, and everyone was talking and everyone was asking, but he was highly controversial. You either loved him or, or you hated him. Everybody was talking about Jesus. He was on everybody's lips and he still is. You know, you stub your toe. You get cut up in traffic or, or you just can't find the right expletive or the right explanation about something. Jesus. Jesus. It's just on everyone's lips. And the question is, do we really understand what we're saying and do we really understand who he is? And do we really understand the impact of this guy and what it means? Jesus is referred to in a number of ways in in this passage of scripture. In verse 35, he's, he's called the Christ of God or the chosen one of God. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. In other words, he's the anointed one of God, the one the prophets had spoken about, the, the one who was going to come and save the nation, save the people. He's, that's what they're saying. He's also described as Jesus of Nazareth and the king of the Jews. Jesus, Jesus meant the one who would save his people from their sins. That's his name, that's his job. King of the Jews, it was meant as a mocking thing and it was put above his head, but it also spoke of, of his popularity. I mean, just a few days earlier, he'd rid, ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey and everyone had shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they'd thrown palm branches. and they'd, This guy was incredibly popular and all these names were his names. But it's not those names that I want to talk about. It's the implicit description of himself. And the explicit description of God that I want to focus on. Jesus uses the word Father when he talks to God. I mean, you might imagine that when someone's hanging on a cross and they're in absolute agony and they're about to die and they come from a religious background, they might shout the name of God a few times. They'd heard this before, but they never heard someone speak to God like this Abba Father Dad Daddy God and he's saying look I'm I'm his son and he is the father 
I truly am his son. I mean, everything points to the fact that I'm his son. The way I heal people, the way people worship me, the way people talked about me, the way I was without sin, all that kind of stuff points to the fact that I was. But, but, but actually, he is a father. He's not an ogre that you have to somehow run from or, or, or a dictator that you somehow have to appease. He's not an absent deity. He's not just the starter and the finisher of all things. He's the father. He's the constant companion. He's not a benevolent dictator. He's an involved God. He loves us. He secures us. He provokes identity in us. He calls purpose out in us. He is the perfection of fatherhood, not the reflection of earthly fatherhood. This is the God that you are looking for. For this is the God that you've been running from. This is who God is. He's not out to beat you up. He's out to love on you. He's out to care for you. He's out to, to help you grow into all the things that he has already sown into your life. That's who God is. He's the Father. He's intimately relational. He's supernaturally knowledgeable. He's unmatchably powerful. He's dad. That's what Jesus is saying. And he is the hearer of our prayers. The father. And he is the ground of our hope. In, in the shaking that's going on in our world right now, and you'd be, you, you must have had your head buried in the sand if you don't realize there's an incredible shaking going on in political institutions, in, in amongst leadership, in, in amongst the way in which all of yesterday's certainties are becoming today's anxieties. There's a shaking going on. He is the security and the hope and the future and the authority in this broken world. The father is the mender. Father. Jesus says, forgive them. And in the forgiveness, he's making an offer. It's a remarkable thing. I mean, just stop for a second. This is just remarkable stuff. In the moment when he would be absolutely excused for being self-focused, he becomes others focused. Isn't that incredible? In the, in the moment when, when he would absolutely be confused for once in his life, the only time in his life when it would have made any sense for him to be totally and utterly self-obsessed and self-concerned because he's, he's, he's having a spiritual battle and a physical battle and it's the worst moment of his life. He says, Father, forgive them. Why? Because he loves us. Because he looks on a broken people in a messed up world. And he says, there's only one thing that's going to deal with this stuff. It's not what you think you need. It's what you actually need. Your, your, your felt need is not your greatest need. Your greatest need is forgiveness. Because the reason that everything else is going wrong in your life. The reason that, that every other relationship doesn't work in your life. The reason that you're always empty and aching and wanting something more in life. The reason that you're searching and, and striving in, in, in life. It's not because you haven't got this stuff. It's because you're disconnected from the father who made you, who created you. You're a creation. He's the creator. And the only way back is, is to be forgiven restored and brought home 
Every sense of anxiety, every sense of loss is actually homesickness for the Father's house. Father, forgive them. And he looks beyond the surface frustrations and the dissatisfactions to the very heart of the issue. He says the issue is not that you haven't got stuff. And the issue is not that you're in the wrong relationship. And the issue is not that you didn't go to university. And the issue is not whatever you say the issue is. The issue is you are absent from the relationship where you should be present in the relationship. Because I made you for the relationship. So what you need is a forgiver, a restorer, a savior. Father, forgive them. And the cool thing is this. Jesus isn't just talking nonsense. He's not just talking theory. He, 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 he says, and if you don't believe this stuff, if you're not sure about whether this is possible, watch this. And he turns to the thief on the cross who absolutely deserved everything that was coming to him. He knew it. And he said, despite that, I know your stuff. Today, you will be with me in paradise. That's forgiveness. I know what you did and you know what you did and you're willing to ask and it doesn't need to be a doctrinal statement of your belief and you don't have to tick every box and you don't have to be sound as a pound. You just need to put your hand up and say, I'm in desperate need of forgiveness because I have fallen short of what I need to be and do and so has everybody else. I just need to be restored. And Jesus says today, I will be with you. You know that word for forgiveness is the word aphimi in the Greek. And it literally means this. This is interesting. Otherwise, I wouldn't bother sharing this with you. It it, it literally means to send away. That's what the word means. It means to send away. You You can find it in Greek commercial documents of the day. And it means to release from legal or moral obligation. In other words, it means uh, releasing a person from office, for example, or cancelling a debt, for example, or ending a marriage. You you get to send away. And and in in effect, it has the effect of offering freedom. Jesus is offering freedom. This is all the stuff that's stacked against you. I'm sending it away. All the guilt that was against you, I'm sending it away. All the relationships that you were in that were debilitating, I'm sending them away. I'm canceling the effect of those things. You get to start afresh. The slate gets wiped clean. All the stuff that you lived in that was holding you back, that was suffocating you, that was disabling you in walking with God. If you ask, it can be canceled, it can be dealt with, and you can start again. Find me. Forgive them. Jesus is doing a deal to secure our freedom. That's what he's doing. He's exchanging his rightness for our unrightness. He's offering a relationship with the Father in exchange for our death sentence. How cool is that? I mean, how, how cool is that? Everything that ever stood against you can be cancelled. everything you ever did that you're not proud of can be forgiven, forgotten, and dealt with. Everything. There is nothing that he cannot forgive and doesn't want to forgive. Father, forgive them. Who? 
told you this will be like the simplest preach you've ever heard in your life. Who? Well, Roman guards. I reckon they probably needed forgiveness. Hammering nails. Pilate, he definitely needed forgiveness. He had a prophetic wife who had a dream and, and he just ignored the dream, washed his hands. Uh, the, the Jewish authorities, yep, they plotted the whole thing. They were just jealous and they, they, they thought that their power was going or whatever it was. And, and, and I don't know. The thief on the cross, yep, he needed forgiveness. The disciples, most of whom just ran away, should have known better. They, yep, you. I'm not sure if this is 100% true, but definitely if you check it out on Wikipedia, therefore it must be true. Um, Mel Gibson, how many of you have seen The Passion of the Christ? If you want to be freaked out. The Passion of the Christ. Uh, apparently in The Passion of the Christ, the, the one place where Mel Gibson shows up in the movie is that his hand is the hand that holds the hammer that drives the nail in to Jesus' hand. And uh, he wanted that to be... The, the case because when he was asked who killed Jesus he said I did I killed Jesus and I don't know about Mel Gibson's theology but I reckon he was probably right about that who needs forgiveness I do I do because I've let people down and I've rebelled against God and I've turned my back on God and I've said things I shouldn't have said and I've done things I shouldn't have done I have ambitions that are not of God I'm not righteous enough in my own strength, but he forgives me. Father, forgive me, you, us, all of us. Romans chapter 1, all are without excuse. Paul writes further on, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, all of us. And the story then goes on. It's a bit weird because if you read it for the first time, there's all this stuff going on at the cross. There's a scene over here, the cross thing, and you can picture it, and the three crosses. And, and then, and then the, the writer, scene writer, then flips really quickly to a scene in the temple. And you've got a curtain in the temple, and if you don't really understand, it's a bit weird. But, but what you need to understand is this. It says the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And what you need to know is this. The presence of God, according to the Jewish people, resided in the Holy of Holies in the temple where there was a flame that was kept like an eternal flame. It was kept burning brightly because it represented the presence of God. And it was so holy and so awful, in all the right understanding of that word, awful, that only one man, one day of the year, the chief priest could go into, behind the curtain, behind the screen, into the place of the Holy of Holies. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. And God says, I'm breaking out. I'm breaking out. And the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. God's doing. You see, God's ambition is the presence of God should reside in all people. In all people. But because of the sin in our world and the mess in our world and the rebellion in our world and the selfishness in our world, the presence of God had been contracted to one man, one day of the year who could go in and be in the presence of God. And God says, I'm breaking out. I'm breaking out. And now forgiveness is available to all. Relationship is available to all. The presence is available. 
Isn't that what you want? Freedom. The presence of God. Total forgiveness. A relationship with God in such a way that you can call him Father. That's what you want. So my question is this. Here it is. Really simple. How do you respond to that kind of offer? Explicit and implicit. How do you respond? Maybe, maybe I'm sure that's not true, but maybe like some of you are like the crowd. They respond by jeering. They respond by laughing. You know, it's a joke, really. It's a bit like Santa Claus. I can live life without Jesus. You know, and, and you put him in a category of, of you know, the, the tooth fairy and, and the Narnia stories and the Tolkien myths. And you say, well, it's good stuff. It has some morals, interesting stuff for our kids. And, but actually, it's, it's not true and it's not real and it's not impactful for my life. Here's the question I want to ask. If, just for one moment, total forgiveness is available for you, If just for one moment you can have a relationship with God who made you and created you and has a plan for your life that's currently better than the plan that you have. If you can be saved, by which I mean you can be whole, healed, and live life in all eternity with God. If all of that is possible, don't you owe it to yourself to check it. Maybe you're not like the crowd. But, but maybe you're more like the soldier at the foot of the cross. The soldier at the foot of the cross is going through his, his business and Jesus comes across his path and, and initial dealings with him, you think he's a usurper, criminal, and then you think he's perhaps maybe not like any usurper that you've ever heard and then you see him die. You encounter him and you say, surely this was a righteous man. Good start but not quite enough. You see, Jesus never left it open to us to think that he was just a righteous man. Now, his, his life and his teaching and his, his provocation and his death and his resurrection, the dead man walked, scream that he truly was who he claimed to be, that he was the son of God and because he is the son of God, he can absolutely radically transform life even today. You might think, well, that's a little bit pedantic and nuanced. But, but t- let me tell you what I see. I often see this. I see it in, uh, in, in life, but I also see it in the church. I see people suspecting the truth about Jesus, but never going all in. I see people kind of intellectually accepting that perhaps they can receive forgiveness, but never actually receiving total forgiveness, never walking in that forgiveness and always walking with a limp. I see people thinking that maybe it's possible to have a relationship with God, but never fully embracing that relationship with God, never jumping into that relationship with God, always standing around the edge of that relationship with God, wondering what it might look like and being a little bit critical of a relationship with God. And what happens is you end up living for yourself. And it will sadly dissatisfy you. And it's not just that it doesn't cut it in the long run, it's that it doesn't work in the short run either. Because you never fully experienced the freedom that we're talking about. You never really experienced the healing that we're talking about. You never really experienced the life in all its fullness that Jesus came to bring. 
Because he is satisfaction. He is security. He is peace. He is hope. He is joy. And he is life. Definitive. No, no, no. My, my prayer is that your response, even tonight, might be more like the thief on the cross. Do you know what? I don't really have the religious language. Not been schooled in all this stuff. But I know if that's what forgiveness is, I need it. Boy, I need it. I know that I'm disappointed with myself, let alone God being disappointed with me. And I kind of suspect that if he's God, he knows. I'm not kidding anybody. You mean you can kid most of the people most of the time, but you can kid God none of the time. Because he's God. And you know what, God? I just want to know you. And I want to be with you. I want to know you. And I want to be with you. Because I suspect being with you is life. I need Jesus. I need him in every way, for everything, forevermore. And Jesus says, today, you will be with me. Today, you will be with me. Let's pray. Let's just in the quietness, let's sit in the presence of God. I have a feeling that some of us uh, here tonight, as we listen to that stuff, bits we heard, some of us just know that we need to know God as a father. And the Holy Spirit would come and would say, look, the, the God I want to introduce you to is a father. He's not an ogre. He's not out to get you. He loves you. He's not the reflection of your fathering. He's the perfection of fatherhood. And he wants to call out identity, security, and purpose in you. And so as the Holy Spirit comes, just, just let him minister the Father. And others of you, just in the quietness, you know you need forgiveness. You know your stuff. And you carry it round. And you're tired of carrying it round. And you're hearing an offer from the, the Savior of the world that you can be forgiven. The slate can be wiped clean. You're saying, I'm in. I'm in. I want that. So just reach out to him. Tell him your stuff. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you minister your forgiveness? And there's just one other group here. Some of you have never, ever gone all in. You've danced around the edge of this faith thing and you've, you've never said, Jesus, I need you. Oh, I need you. I need you for everything in every way forevermore. 
I want to stand the weight of my life on you. I want you to lead me and guide me. I want you to be my savior because I can't be. And you've never done that before. And so before we start hearing stories of faith and baptizing people, just an opportunity for you to say, I want to be in. If, if you know that's you, if you know God's been speaking to you, even as I was speaking, and your heart is moved and you're saying, I want, I want this and I've never done this, just in the quietness, it's just me and you, just raise your hand so that I can pray for you and with you. And, uh, and then bless you. Thank you. There's one or two more, I think. Thank you. If you know that's you. raise your hand high so I can see it. Yeah, bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Bless you. Okay, guys, just um, just put your hand down, but I, but I want to ask you to pray this prayer in your heart quietly after me. It's not, a, it's not a magic prayer, but it offers the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to come and do a work of grace in your life. Jesus, I'm done running from you. I'm done hanging around the edge. And I want all in. I believe that you're the savior of the world, the son of God. And I invite you into my life to be my restorer, to be my savior and to be my leader. Would you come be the authority of my life from this moment onwards? Would you be my guide? Would you be my friend? I mean this, Jesus. Thank you. Amen.